It's a joy to be with you guys. Um, it's such an amazing reality that we can come across the world and worship the same Lord and Savior that has changed all of our lives. Um, what kindness he has shown us across the world. He has not left one um, without the good news of Christ. And so today, let us gaze again upon the good news of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us in Ephesians 2. Before I begin, I, I want to start with this introduction. So imagine with me a scuba diver at the Great Barrier Reef, not too far from here. I guess it is far from here, <laughs> but it's up there. So but imagine he's, he's been swimming around all day, finding all kinds of cool shells and seeing all kinds of cool fish. Um, it's a beautiful day in paradise, to say the least. And he realizes his oxygen tank is running low, so he starts making his way back to the boat. And as he's way, making his way back, he sees like a really dark cave underneath him. And he sees this really shiny object at the bottom of it. But knowing he needs to make it back to the boat, he starts to do that. But then that, that object continues to fix his, uh, fix his desire on that object. And instead of going back up to the boat, he, he actually swims down toward the object. And so, knowing he has little oxygen, uh, only maybe 10 minutes at best, he makes his way down to try to get the object at the bottom. He's swimming hard and swimming fast, and at one point, he realizes he needs to turn around. He realizes that if he doesn't turn around now, he's not going to make it back up to the surface in time. But his gaze is so fixed on that shiny object that he chooses to keep going further and further and further his gaze fixed, his heart set on this object, he is surely to die. Who would do such a thing? Who would keep going down when you know that you are running out of air? But actually, this chilling situation is more familiar than it seems. This actually once described us all. And our text this morning is going to tell us a story that is even more chilling. But our problem is, we don't see how chilling it really is. But here is the good news. Unlike the diver's story, our text has a happy ending. Our text is going to reveal to us just how chilling our lives were and just how glorious God's solution was. A remedy so marvelous, a deliverance of such magnitude that it will be the object of our eternal wonder. So let's look at what it has to say. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, 
even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so did you see the dangerous situation in this text? And did you notice the glorious deliverance? That's the effect this text is meant to have on us. And if we were to boil it down today, we should take away this main point. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. The gracious nature of our salvation reserves all glory to God. Paul wants to remind us of the power that rescued us from the dead so that we might come to marvel at the immeasurable grace of God to save sinners like you and me. And this simple truth has massive implications for our lives, and it shows us just how good our God is. And I think we can see three main points in our text, three aspects of this wonderful rescue story that's meant to shape our lives. And so my first main point is this. We were helplessly dead, verses one through three. If you're familiar with this letter, you'll know that chapter one is packed with amazing truths, the spiritual blessings we receive in Christ. But then in chapter two, Paul takes a turn. And in these verses today, Paul looks back to our condition before we received those blessings. And he unpacks just how dead we were. And notice that these are past tense verbs. This is who we were before Christ. And so he says, verse one, we were dead. Not physically dead, but dead in the trespasses and sins we were walking. Our condition was a mixture of good and bad. It was not one of moral neutrality. Because all that we did was characterized by sin. Even if we did a good thing, it was for the wrong it was for the wrong reasons and the wrong motivations. And so as a result of that, we were severed and alienated from God, the source of true life. And so that's what it means to be spiritually dead, and that is what Paul is saying here. Moreover, we weren't stationary in our sins. Paul says that we followed the course of this world. This world, which we followed, is not in the direction of God's will, but rather is in rebellion against God, just as we were. This is not good news, but it gets worse. Not only were we dead, we were enslaved. We followed the prince of the power of the air. That is, we followed Satan himself. Whether we knew it or not, the sobering reality is we belong to him because we too were in rebellion against God. And notice that Paul says that this spirit or influence is now at work. And so we see that Satan's evil supernatural activity exerted a powerful, compelling influence over our lives and actually continues to do so in this world. We were spiritual captives. Satan's influence held a sway as we rebelled against God with him. Thus, we were sons of disobedience. 
because our lives were contrary to the living God. And so this just seems to be getting worse and worse. And that is Paul's point. But he continues on, describing exactly how we were walking in sin. And so look at verse 3, where he says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Paul switches here to we. He doesn't leave himself out of the equation, but recognizes that he, too, just like the Ephesians, were helplessly dead in sin. He remembers full well how he was also enslaved to sin. And so he doesn't leave himself out of the group, and neither can we, because we, too, were once enslaved to sin. And the language here is comprehensive. Every part of us was sinning. Our daily lives were marked by pursuing whatever pleasure we conceived of, both in body and mind. The NASB describes it as indulging the desires of the flesh. Our endeavor was one of enjoying this world to the glory of ourselves. Now, let me explain that statement with a few clarifications. This does not mean that people are as thoroughly sinful as they can possibly be, nor that they don't have a conscience about right and wrong, nor that they aren't able to perform certain actions that are good and helpful in the sight of others. By God's common grace, he mercifully restrains sin in this world. Thank you, Lord. But this does mean that every aspect of human nature is affected by sin from birth. Thus, nothing we did was pleasing in God's sight. Nothing we did earned his favor. This is because we had no love for God as a motivating principle for any of our actions or thoughts. Further, we could not change this fundamental preference for self-worship and sin, nor did we want to. But rather, we willingly chose to rebel against God. And Paul finishes the picture, this picture with the outcome of all this. We were dead, we were enslaved, and then he says, we were all condemned. We were, he says, by nature, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We and the rest of humanity were destined to receive exactly what our sin called for, the righteous wrath of a holy God. Think back to the scuba diver. Remember that he would not and could not turn away from that shiny object that had fixed his heart's desire, though it meant death. That was us with sin. We would not and could not turn away from our sinful desires, even though it meant certain eternal death. Now, why is Paul telling us all this? Is he seeking to shame us? By no means. Rather, he wants us to see how desperate our need was, how great of a need we were in. We were in. He wants us to see that we were helpless. Because once we have grasped how serious our condition really was, then we can see why Christ had to die on the cross for us. And D.A. Carson describes our condition when he writes this. If God had perceived that our greatest need was economic, he would have sent us an economist. If he had perceived that our greatest need was entertainment, he would have sent us a comedian or an artist. If God had perceived that our greatest need was political stability, he would have sent us a politician. If he had perceived that our greatest need was health, he would have sent us a doctor. But he perceived 
that our greatest need involved our sin, our alienation from him, our profound rebellion, our death. And he sent us a savior. If you're sitting here today and you haven't turned to Christ in repentance and faith, if you haven't given your life to following him as Lord and Savior, you are under God's wrath. Your sin deserves eternal punishment. You are dead in trespasses and sins. And as a result, you stand condemned before God. And this past week, I was freshly sobered by the reality of death when my coworker died in an accident. And so I don't want to leave here today without warning you, without pleading with you. God is patiently waiting for you to turn to him. But unless you do, you will be eternally condemned for your sin after you die. Yet, there is hope for even the worst of sinners. And this leads me to my second point. Although we were helplessly dead, the story didn't end there. And so we move to main point number two. God mercifully saved us, verses four through seven. Let me read these verses again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so now Paul turns our attention to God's powerful grace to save us. Verse four, but God. There is an abrupt change in this text. We've already seen ourselves, we've seen the devil, and we've seen all of mankind, but a new character arrives on the scene, like a superhero who flies in and changes everything. The greatest superhero hero is ever imaginable has showed up. Not Batman or Superman or any other man, but God shows up on the scene. One who is not only able to save us from physical death, but from the eternal punishment we deserved. And note, Paul doesn't begin with what God did, but he actually begins with who God is, because what he did actually flows out of who he is. And so we see that God is rich in mercy showing his compassion to those who are totally unworthy and undeserving. And that mercy proceeds from love, hence the great love with which he loved us. And so how great a love is this? A love so great that he was able to love us even when we were dead in our trespasses. The word even here is emphatic. Even when we are still dead in our trespasses and sins in which we walk, following the course of this world, following the way of Satan, living in the lust of our flesh, and we're by nature children of wrath, even then God made us alive in Christ because of his love for us. That is why Paul exclaims in Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us in that 
while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is clear then that God did not love us because of who we were because of, or because of anything we did because all that we were doing was sinning against him and his creation. The very best of our works pierced his hands and his feet. So that is why Paul exclaims in verse five, by grace you have been saved. And so how did he save us? Verse five, he made us alive together with Christ. Remember, we were dead, but God took action to raise us up from the dead. And he did so with Christ. And so notice how closely we are connected with Christ. Paul says, with Christ and in Christ several times. In other words, all the blessings of our salvation are found in Christ alone. This reality is further spelled out in the New Testament and is often referred to as the doctrine of union with Christ. This doctrine teaches that salvation takes place in Jesus because he is our salvation and salvation is found in no one else but him. Thus, what God accomplished in Christ, he has accomplished for believers by joining them to Christ. He is in us and we are in him. That is great news. Paul goes on further to describe the glorious realities of being made alive in Christ. He says that we were raised up with him. Like Christ was raised from the dead on the third day, we were raised from the dead with him spiritually, and one day we'll be physically, and through him we were reconciled with the Father. Further, Paul says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So not only do we participate with Christ's resurrection life, but we also share in his exaltation and consequent victory over the powers of sin and evil. In him, we are new creatures. In him, we are now free. Therefore, we do not have to succumb to temptation, nor the evil one's influence. For the power of of God, which raised Jesus from the dead, is available to us in the Holy Spirit. In verse 7, we see where this is all heading. The purpose of our salvation is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, our salvation will put on full display for all to see for all to marvel at the incredible grace and love of God toward us. And Paul is telling us this so that we can begin marveling now because we will never be able to fully exhaust the depth of God's grace in saving us, nor his love for us, for it is immeasurable. God's act of saving sinners like you and me will serve as a demonstration of his glorious grace for all eternity. And there is another magnificent reality at the end of verse 7. Don't miss it. We are seen as those in Christ Jesus. In other words, God views us as he, as he sees his beloved son. Once enemies of God and objects of his wrath, we are now loved by him with the same love he has for his son. This should amaze us, for this is the grace of God. In his most excellent book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer writes this. In the New Testament, grace means God's love in action toward people who merited the opposite of love. 
Grace means God moving heaven and earth to save sinners who could not lift a finger to save themselves. Grace means God sending his only son to the cross so that we guilty ones might be reconciled to God and received into heaven. And it is about this grace that John Newton wrote in his song, Amazing Grace. We're all familiar with this famous hymn, but it becomes more meaningful when we remember who wrote it. John Newton was a man who spent his life in the slave trade, participating and profiting from its brutal inhumanity. However, on one journey, he encountered a storm that swept some of his men overboard, leaving all in the fear of death. And with both hands fastened onto the ship's wheel, this hardened sailor turned his heart to God and cried out, Lord, have mercy on us. And after 11 hours of steering, the remainder of the crew found safety with the calming of the storm. And from then on, Newton dated March 21st as a day set aside for prayer and praise, as this was the day that God saved a wretch like him. He soon began learning Hebrew and Greek, and he shared his conversion story in various congregations. He was eventually ordained and began to pastor his own church because God had transformed him from being an advocate for the slave trade to a man actively working towards abolishing it. But most importantly, God saved him, a sinner, by making him alive in Christ. In later years, Newton began to lose his memory. Although his thoughts were limited, Newton said he could remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Newton knew that the story of Ephesians 2 was true of him as well. Indeed, it was amazing grace that saved him. So what about you? Is grace amazing to you? Or have you grown familiar with it? This text is meant to kindle afresh that sense of amazement because here is your story. You were made alive in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. And so see God's love in this. Be reminded of his mercy. See the immeasurable riches of his grace toward us in Christ Jesus. What a transformation we've received from objects of wrath to objects of his mercy, from spiritual death to new life, from bondage to sin and Satan to freedom in Christ. Every necessary step to reverse our condition and sin, God has accomplished in Christ. And it is all a gift. And so all of this is meant to have a powerful effect on our hearts. It is meant to produce joy in our great deliverance. It is meant to produce humility as we see our great undeservedness. It is meant to allow us to rest in our great security, Christ himself, who has secured our eternal salvation. And so do, do these characterize your soul as you ponder Christ and what he's accomplished? If not, let this text adjust your perspective on Christ's salvation. Let it refresh your view of God, who is rich in mercy and great in love. This text is meant to cause us to cry out, who is like our God? There is no one like our God. He alone is worthy of our devotion, our lives, and our praise. 
And let me again plead with those here who have not given their lives to Christ. See Christ, the Son of God, on the cross, crowned with thorns, his hands and his feet pierced, as he labors to breathe in agony. See what he became to set you free. He calls your sin his own and suffers the wrath that you deserved. He dies to save you, his enemy. He dies in your place so that you can be forgiven of your sins and reconciled to God. And there is no salvation outside of Christ. There is no hope apart from Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. But whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned. So I plead with you, turn to Christ who died to save you. Repent and receive him with faith today. So now that we've seen our helpless condition and God's powerful action, we're in a place to reflect on the nature of our salvation. And so this brings us to the third part of Paul's argument. Main point number three. Our salvation is totally by grace. Verses eight through 10. Let me reread these verses for us. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so given all that Paul has said, he draws an inescapable conclusion about our salvation. The entire process was completely by God's grace. And Paul couldn't be more emphatic. He says, it is by grace you have been saved. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not a result of works. Paul would not allow us to find a trace of our salvation in something we do. It's not because you made a decision. It's not because you did a deep study on world religions. It's not because you know a bunch of facts about the Bible. It's not because you tried harder. It's not because you piled up more good works than your neighbor. It's not... It's neither your achievement nor a reward for any of your deeds. Rather, it is totally by God's grace, his undeserved kindness, his merciful generosity. And now Paul also notes that this salvation is through faith. So there's a tension that needs to be spelled out. If God is the one who saves us by grace, what part does our faith play in all of this? But the key to this is in the following sentence where he says, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. This means that salvation is obtained not by doing, but by believing. Because nothing of which we did saved us, but rather our salvation is the gift of God. And even this faith is the gift of God. We could define faith as this, our trust and reliance upon Christ. And so faith serves as an instrument, and it's actually the only instrument by which one can obtain salvation. And yet, even this faith was given to us by God as a gift, 
And he sustains our faith in the Holy Spirit as we live the Christian life. That is why, verse 9, the whole process of, of salvation is not a result of anything we have done, and therefore we cannot boast about ourselves. Because God's initiative in salvation leaves no room for human merit, and therefore there is no room for boasting. Rather than boasting in ourselves, instead, with Paul and with all the men and women of faith throughout Scripture and throughout history, we boast in the Lord. Because while we were helplessly dead, he saved us and made us alive together with Christ. Our salvation is a gift of God by the power and grace of God. And verse 10 further supports and explains this. You may ask, what does he mean by workmanship in this verse? So by stating we are his workmanship, Paul is referring back to all that God did for us in Christ to save us, emphasizing again that it, is, it was God's work that saved us, not what we did. And in fact, he uses a present tense verb now, are, to indicate that we are still his workmanship. This means that although we were saved in the past, God is still working in us to make us more like Christ. Thus, our salvation from first to last is his workmanship. We truly are his masterpiece. He created us, redeemed us, is sanctifying us, and will one day glorify us. And there's a purpose to this. Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so, although our salvation is not based on our works, this new life leads to good works. Good works are, like our salvation, a gift from God. It's not, he saved me, now I have to do the rest. No. Our future changes because God has made us a new creation with a new purpose. We now have an amazing future of doing good. We do good works not to earn salvation, for that has already been fully given. Rather, good works are evidence and outflow of the grace of salvation we have received. We've been repurposed to our original design. The trajectory of our lives has changed to one pleasing to God. That is good news. Our whole identity has changed. Our whole life has changed. Our whole future changes because of God's gracious salvation to save sinners. Moreover, Paul says that these good works were prepared beforehand by God so that we should walk in them. And so God designed these works in eternity past for which he has fashioned us so that we should continuously do them. Again, it is all by the grace of God. For even the good works he sets before us to do, he divinely orchestrated and, uh, <clears throat> and empowers us to do them. And notice the connection between verse 10 and verse 2. In verse 2, we were walking according to the world and the flesh. This was the pre-Christian way of life. However, here in verse 10, we are walking according to the new life we have in Christ and in the good works God has prepared for, before us. This is actually one of the striking features of our passage because Paul draws a vivid contrast between our previous condition outside of Christ and our current condition in Christ. And so let me spell it out for us. Verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sin. But, verse 5, we have now been made alive. Verse 2, we were following the ways of this world, ruled by the ruler of the kingdom of air. But, verses 5 through 6, we are now under the lordship of Christ and seated with him in the heavenly places. Finally, verse 3, we were children of wrath. But, verse 5 and 8, we are saved by grace and reconciled to God in Christ. Notice also that the works of verse 10 are described as good works. 
in contrast to the wicked works of verse 9. The works of verse 9, before being made alive together with Christ, were anything but good works. But a glorious change has come. In Christ, God is pleased by our works. So they are said to be good because they come from the Spirit of God himself. We have been totally transformed so we can go live a life, not of dead works, but of glory to God. What a joy. In church history, catechisms have been used to summarize complex biblical truths. And it strikes me that question one of the Heidelberg Catechism, written over 450 years ago, beautifully captures so much of what we have seen in our text. And so question one asks this, what is your only comfort in life and death? And this is what it richly answers. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. So therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life. It makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the glorious reality that is ours in Christ. The same God who raised Christ from the dead raised us from our death and sin, liberated us from slavery, and rescued us from condemnation. Therefore, our faith rests entirely upon him. Our lives belong to him. Now, this is not to say that once we are saved, we'll just stop sinning in this life. Actually, Paul will spend much of this letter encouraging the Ephesians in their struggle with sin. But before he gets to that, Paul wants them and God wants us to have a rock-solid security in the salvation Christ has purchased for us. That salvation has made us alive and created new desires within us and sets us on a course to increasingly put sin to death and walk in the wonderful works God has prepared for us. And the implications for our daily lives couldn't be more encouraging. First, when we fail, there is no condemnation, but instead forgiveness and reconciliation to God and Christ. Second, since we are his workmanship, he will continue the good work which he began in us and will bring it to its completion. That is why Paul can write in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 23 through 24, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The same power of God which was effective in Christ's resurrection and exaltation has made you alive with Christ. The same power is at work in our lives now by his Holy Spirit. Further, we must consider another implication of this passage. Sadly, those who do not know Christ, they are still dead in their sin, just as we were. They are still children of wrath, as we have mentioned. They are in desperate need of rescue. And this is the seriousness that must drive our evangelism. 
We should never hate unbelievers around us, but we should show them the love of Christ. And true love to them is expressed in compassion toward their helpless state, that we too were once in at some point. Just as we were helpless, our unbelieving friends, family, neighbors are all in urgent need of a Savior. And the good news, however, is that the one who saved us is able to save them and desires to save them. God is able to save anyone, even those that seem to us unfathomably unsavable. Those deep in sin and despair, they are not too far off. And therefore, this passage gives us confidence in our evangelism. For we see in it that it is not in our hands to save, but it is in God's hands. But he does commission us to be faithful gospel proclaimers. And so thus in confidence, knowing that God will save those whom he chooses, we ought to proclaim the gospel to any unbeliever we meet, no matter how lost they may seem, knowing that by the power and grace of God, they too can be saved. Because this God who has rescued you through the gospel of his son is still rescuing. God, by his grace, changes lives. As another application this week, I want you to look back on God's grace in your life. I want you to look back to see how God has changed you. It could be your conversion story or it could be a season of life where God miraculously transformed you to be like his son. And as you remember this, I want you to tell someone about it. Tell your wife, tell your kids, your friends, your coworkers, but resolve to tell at least one person about what God has done in you. Because when we remember what God has done, we can then marvel at God's gracious salvation. For this is the grace that has changed the trajectory of our entire lives. So let me end today with these words from John Newton. He writes this in his song, Amazing Grace. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. This grace that brought me safe thus far in grace will lead me home. When we've been here 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we stand before you so undeserving of your grace and mercy. We do not deserve an ounce of your grace and love toward us. But yet, Lord, when we were dead in our sin, rebelling against you, when we willingly chose to be your enemy, you died in our place to save us, to reconcile us to you. It is truly by grace that we have been saved. Oh, Lord, may this grace continue to amaze us. May it freshen our souls when we wake up in the morning and when we lie down at night. May it secure our heart's desire. Rather than sin, Lord, may you be the one we worship. Rather than ourselves, Lord, may Christ be magnified in us and through us this week as we go back to our jobs, to our neighborhoods, 
to our families, Lord. May Christ be exalted and praised. May you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, work good works in us that you have prepared beforehand. Thank you, Lord, for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.